Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dr. Joy. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Here I saw a dappled wonder settling across the fields, hovering on angel wings, brandishing a blazing shield. Where do they go? The ones that run away and never return. There is nothing here but suffering. Pain and suffering. It is time to go. Girl in that bulletin is wanted for the murder of a child. Man lost my mom. Then me. Ain't no way he ever given up on finding me. There's anger in you. He'll fuel you, yes, What's the worst kind of fuel? The worst kind. Savagery man is capable of. When he believes his cause to be just. The Underground Railroad, Barry Jenkins' epic adaptation of Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, features a sweeping orchestral score composed by Nicholas Bertel. The composer previously earned Academy Award nominations for his work on Jenkins' films Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk. His credits also include the HBO series Succession, for which he won an Emmy for its theme music. The Underground Railroad is a 10-part Amazon limited series that follows Cora Randall, played by Tussauds and Bedou, as a slave who flees her Georgia plantation. In this episode of The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen, we'll be talking with Bertel about this score, as well as listening to some of his cues from the series. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to Behind the Screen. So, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. So happy to be here. Thank you. So let's start with how you and Barry met each other. Sure, sure. Um, I... It was 2015. Uh, I was working on The Big Short, actually, and um, uh, one of the producers on The Big Short, uh, Jeremy Kleiner, and I were having dinner, and I remember him, um, he was telling me about a screenplay uh, that he was helping produce, and as he was talking about the screenplay, he, he started to get very emotional and actually cry a little bit, and he was, um, you know, I was sort of like, what? what is the screenplay? And he sent it to me and it was the screenplay for Moonlight. And I read it and I thought it was the most beautiful 
script I'd ever read. I think to this day, it's still the most beautiful script I'd ever read. And, uh, you know, I said, is there, uh, is there any way I could just meet Barry or grab a coffee or, you know, and, and so Jeremy said he would check and see if, you know, Barry wanted to meet me. And, uh, we just, we just got together for a coffee, uh, at the Ace Hotel in downtown LA. And, um, what initially was supposed to be, uh, you know, 30 minute coffee turned into a multi-hour conversation about music and movies and life. And we opened a bottle of wine and, uh, you know, I, that was really just the beginning of this conversation that I think we're still having to this day in a way. It just, uh, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. Well, from Moonlight to If Beale Street Could Talk to Underground Railroad, uh, what is it about your relationship that you think makes it work so well? Well, I'm, I feel so lucky to work with Barry. He's one of the most incredible people I've ever known. Um, and he's a truly remarkable collaborator. Um, I think we both, I think we both have a sense of the mystery of kind of all artistic work in a way. Um, the beginnings of, of our work on any project are, we, we both really cherish those moments. Um, and there's a sense of, the joy of experimentation. There's a sense of being, being excited that we don't know where we're going to wind up on things. Um, we both really, we both really share that. And I think it's really an integral part of our process. Actually, as we work on things, we feel we're learning as we go and we're discovering things. And it's those kind of moments of discovery. I think where we have a, there's a kind of shared joy in, seeing what's possible and with, uh, finding something that you didn't expect. Um, and, and it's incredibly inspiring to know that, that everything is possible in a sense. There's such an openness to trying things out that I find so inspiring. And, uh, I, you know, just as an example, you know, if I'm, if, you know, we, we work so closely together, um, we're in the room together. That's really part of our, our process. And, um, you know, I'll sometimes say, you know, I have a crazy idea or I want to show him something and, and he'll always say, show me, I'll just say, show me, you know, there's never, there's never a, there's never a notion of, well, actually, I don't think that's going to work. Let's not, you know, it's always, let's see, you know, Every, everything's a yes in a way. And then, and then when it, you know, oftentimes things don't work, <laughs> which, and the great thing is that's also helpful in our, in our, to us, you know, when something doesn't work, it shows you what could work. So in a lot of ways, not only is he so incredibly brilliant um, and insightful and has amazing instincts and loves music and, you know, all of those attributes, but he's also, um, he and I share that kind of, I think, philosophy of the process. And that might be the, the thing that connects us the most in some of these ways. Just the, you know, artistic process and artistic collaboration are such intangible kind of things in a way that, but I think there are certain attributes that really, um, that actually when you, when you drill, drill deep, that really matter, uh, the process itself really matters. Um, and I remember actually it was, it wasn't in our first conversation, but I remember it was, a, it was a few months later. Um, I remember meeting up with Barry in LA and, uh, 
he hadn't worked with a composer before, and this was this was before we had really uh, gotten gotten deep in, into scoring Moonlight. And I remember him saying to me, you know, how how should this work? Like, what what do we what do we do next? You know, now that we've talked, you know, what's? And I remember saying to him, I think we just have to be in the same room, and we have to spend time together, and we have to look at see the same things, hear the same things together at the same time. And and I I still strongly believe that, um, which was one of the uh, at times, one of the real challenges, uh, over the, over this pandemic, you know, uh, which, which also actually had a, um, an interesting outcome in a sense, because, because of the pandemic, I ended up, uh, my wife and I ended up moving to LA for six months. Uh, and because of that, we counterintuitively actually spent more time with Barry than we've ever spent before because we were in this kind of quarantine pod together. But those were the early, those were really the early conversations, you know, it was, um, I think there was this, there was really a similar approach to the process and, and yeah. From um, the pandemic standpoint, where, where were you in planning the score with him when we had to stay at home and how, how did you work together on that? I had started working with Barry um, the previous year. So we had started, he had started um, filming in the summer of 2019. Uh, so we had already been talking before the pandemic and working together and actually had, I think because I knew how large the scope was for the Underground Railroad, I mean, it's so massive and I, and I, and I was aware of the, just the multidimensionality of it, the multiple worlds that, that, that were going to be required in a way. And so I, I remember having conversations with both Barry and with Joy McMillan. Mm-hmm. Joy, the editor. Joy, the editor. Incredible brilliant editor, uh, and friend. And, uh, just saying, I, you know, I kind of want to get ahead of the game a little bit because I think there's so much that needs to be done. And so we started early on talking about things. There were actually times in October of that year, for example, and then in December, January, before the pandemic, where where we would have whole sessions together. We'd spend days together thinking about things and trying things while he was shooting. But then when the pandemic happened, um, on the filming side, there were only a couple days left, I believe, of, of filming. So because so much of the series had been shot, we were able to start on post, which was uh, essential to us being able to, to finish it, obviously. But um, but early on, you know, that was the, I mean, the big question I had was, how am I going to do this if I can't be in the same room with Barry? Like, how does this work? Because I really, I really mean it when I say I, I think it's essential. <laughs> it's not, you know, so I was sort of like thinking, okay, um, let's try FaceTime or something like that. You know, this was pre-Zoom. <laughs> no one was using Zoom yet. So I remember we had these interesting uh, sessions where I would kind of like set up a laptop with FaceTime and put it in like at the computer with this. And I would say, hey, can you hear this? Okay. Let me email. And it was very difficult. It was, it was not, it was not, uh, efficacious to our process. So, um, it became apparent that, uh, we had to figure out a way to be together. And, uh, so we moved to LA for six months and, um, we got a house there uh, that we rented and, uh, and Barry would, you know, a typical day for Barry might be working in the edit in the morning, coming over to uh, our place in the afternoon, sometimes all the way from one to eight or 10 at night, some days going to, you know, the, the mix stage. Um, so it was, uh, it was really in hindsight, it was really necessary for this, uh, that we spent that much time. I, we, we spent more time working together, um, on underground railroad than all the things we've done combined. 
and it was really the only way to finish the project, I think, was to spend that much time on it. Every episode, in a way, was like a movie in its scope. I mean, some of the episodes, I think episode two, for example, South Carolina has more, has almost twice as much score in it as Moonlight has. Just South Carolina, just that one episode, you know? So so there was a, there was an acknowledgement of the scope of work that we knew we had to figure out a way to accomplish that. One of the, you know, one of the key elements uh, of of the way that Barry and I work is really he has these initial instincts, which are incredible. And um, on every project, he has an initial uh, first kind of idea that he wants to explore. On Moonlight, for example, he knew right from the beginning that he wanted a classical kind of orchestral score. But we also talked about the idea of ch- of using chopped and screwed techniques on the score on Beale Street early on his first sense was he was he said he was hearing the sound of brass and horns so just off that I went and started experimenting with you know flugelhorns and cornets and french horns and um, and on Underground Railroad the first thing that happened actually was on a very musical specific level I remember he was on set and he in Savannah and he sent me I got an audio text message from him. Uh, and he doesn't usually send me audio text messages, uh, you know, but so I got this audio recording and it just sounded like a construction site with no comment. And I was a little confused, wasn't sure what that meant. And a couple hours later, I got a text from Barry and, it, and he just wrote, did you get what I sent? And immediately I knew what he was talking about. He was talking about, there was the sound, the construction site, it was, it was drilling into the, into the ground. And so I immediately started thinking about, okay, he's talking about digging. He's talking about going downward. And I took the sound of the drilling and I started experimenting with it. I bent it. Um, there was this, when you stretched it out, there was this kind of interesting rhythm that, that, that he was into. There was an undulating kind of tone to it. And that was the first, that was really the starting point to this whole realm of, of experimenting that we did on kind of like elemental forces, I would say in the beginning. It was the, you know, so there was earth, there was digging into the earth, going downward, going underground. There was air. What's in the air? It's these cicadas. And uh, Annalie, or, you know, our incredible sound supervisor would send me these, Annalie Blank, amazing, amazing artist. And she would send these field recordings she was making of cicadas. And I would take those and Barry and I would experiment with them. And I would sort of we, I would take those and actually we found that there were these almost like interesting kind of melodies that you could hear if you slowed down the sound of the cicadas. And then fire, we took the sound of fire, um, another elemental force, and taking that sound of fire and actually, you know, seeing w- w- could we weave that into the score somehow. So these were, again, these were these kind of early stage experiments that we would do where, like I said, we never really know where we're going to wind up with things, you know, Um, but these are the sort of starting points. And interestingly, I think it was really the, um, it was really the, 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 the going downward, the drilling, the digging kind of a concept that actually led to me then saying musically, what musically could be the sound of kind of going downward, you know, what is that? What is the nature of that? And I took this four note motif that I was thinking of literally a musical chromatic descent, E flat D D flat C. And I started playing with that as this idea of going down. And then 
it was in January 2020, I think it was early on, where I was with Barry. And I remember I always, you can always tell when Barry's into something because he'll, he'll, if I'm playing him something, he'll say, keep going, don't stop, <laughs> don't stop. So, so I remember playing this piece for him and I started putting these chords around this inner chromatic descent and we called it pillars because it felt like these almost kind of like these pillars in the earth. And then that piece continued evolving over many months. You know, all of the musical ideas evolved over such a long period of time where what started as this idea of kind of like drilling then went musically into the descent, then went into the piano, then I put strings with it. And then I experimented with this very raw kind of tremoloing string. And eventually we then recorded that remotely in London with a 50 piece string orchestra. And then I took those recordings and brought them back into the piece and experimented further. And that is the story basically of the piece you hear at the very beginning of the series, that piece is Genesis. Um, so that's kind of, you know, one example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nicholas, another cue that uh, you selected was the journey, which is when Cora and Caesar are running across the field in the first episode. Uh, would you talk about that one? Sure, sure. Um, you know, like I was saying, I mean, I think the real the real challenge with Underground Railroad was to be able to capture and convey the scope of the journey and the scope of the different worlds. Uh, that Cora was going into over this over the course of the series, and each of those worlds required a reimagining and a reinventing of the musical landscape. There was never one musical soundscape that would work for all the episodes. Really, the opposite. Actually, it was every almost every episode has its own very distinct world. And yet within all of that, that being said, um, there were certain ideas that absolutely did have to connect as well, um, because there is clearly a connective thread in the series. And what was fascinating to me was figuring out with Barry, at what point, at what point in the series, at what point in the work do we start going back and re and, and, and sort of reapproaching what we've done with the knowledge of where we were going to go. So that was this kind of very large scale, almost like architectural kind of question. Um, so the journey was one of those musical concepts, which linked across the series. And the first incarnation of that musical idea is in the moment that you mentioned when they're running across the field. And that piece has a lot of different, um, elements to it. 
there is a kind of opening um, musical exposition to it, which is really more atmospheric, I would say. There are certain sounds, there are certain rhythms, there are certain percuss percussion elements that you hear, which will rhyme with later moments in the series. Um, there's the sound of a harp, which will become integral later in the series. Uh, and then about midway through the piece, we hear um, uh, a cello playing this bass line initially and then taking over a melody. And that is really a, a, what we would call Caesar's theme. And so you hear that theme. There are, for, there are other places where the Caesar's theme connects in, in a lot of the series without giving too much away. But there, that idea became something which really was integral. Uh, to the series, and uh, and without giving anything away too much, the the, the journey idea comes back at the as actually the last piece in the whole series, and, and the last piece you hear is what we call the journey reprise, and that's the final iteration of that piece. So there is a there is a connecting with that moment in episode one, and actually with the final moment in the series. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In another episode, there's a scene where Cora is, is walking down Main Street in a yellow dress, and uh, this uh, cue was called Bessie. Would you like to describe it? Bessie was a very um, important piece of music for us because I remember in reading the book, uh, the South Carolina episode was particularly fascinating in that sense of there were these, there was a skyscraper in South Carolina in the mid 1800s. And I remember when I read that, at first, I said to myself, I didn't realize there were skyscrapers in the mid-1800s in South Carolina. And then, of course, there were no skyscrapers in the mid-1800s in South Carolina. And that immediately brought up all these questions of the historical anachronisms, the magical realism that is central to the Underground Railroad, uh, literally 
to its Underground Railroad as well. And it started this this question and this conversation of what would that what should that sound like musically? Like what does that mean in a sense? Like how do we convey that feeling of strangeness with music? And when we got to South Carolina, that was a big question that Barry and I had talked about before we even started experimenting with these ideas. But what we came to was this idea that there was an almost fantastically lush orchestral sound, which juxtaposed with Cora's journey in South Carolina, that juxtaposition felt like a question mark in a sense. And I think that's something which is really a part of our... Um, film music aesthetic, I guess you almost could say that the idea that we don't, we never really want to push the audience to feel a particular way. That's not something that we try to do. We really try to, for us, evoke the, hopefully the, the actual feeling of something is kind of how we're trying to do it, almost being more inside of it in a sense. So we didn't want to say this is strange, perhaps, you know, where by putting a strange sound, we actually wanted to put a piece that in in combination with where you are and where she is, just you're just sort of wondering why this piece is like, what does this piece mean? You know? So so that's what Bessie in a way represented to us. It was it was it was a lushness, a fantastical lushness, but also it raised an important question, I think, about the nature of Cora's journey and also the nature of the magical realism in the Underground Railroad. You talked a little bit about recording the music under the pandemic. Were you able to go over for that or were you listening remotely? How did that work? So it was a, it was, it was, I've never done this before. I've always been at my recording sessions and I've always conducted the orchestras too. I love, I love, um, I love that part of the process actually in a way. Um, it's very psychologically cathartic when you write all this music to actually go and record it. It's sort of a nice, it gives you a sense of, um, it's kind of a sense of closure, you know, uh, of, of, of a process. And when you can't do that, it's actually pretty difficult <laughs> because you don't get this feeling of, uh, of, 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 uh, the joy of being there. That being said, it was remarkable what we were able to do remotely. Uh, we, I was not able to go to London during, during the, that, that period of time. Um, and so what we did was, um, the, uh, there's an amazing, extraordinary group of musicians who I've worked with uh, in London over the over the years, um, and we recorded at Air Studios um, in Lyndhurst Hall, the huge, beautiful church hall there. And uh, there's basically this incredible technology. There's a, a program called Audio Movers, 
that you use. You basically set up a Zoom, you set up Zoom so you have cameras where you can see everything happening. And then you have a program that you use that plugs directly into the mixing board in the studio. So I was in Los Angeles, you know, at like 5 a.m. LA time. <laughs> and in London, you know, um, this magnificent group of musicians is recording and I can actually hear in virtually real time and with total high definition what the, the mixing booth is hearing at the studio. So I, I was amazed by that. I had never done that before. And, uh, and, and, and when I say it worked, I mean, it really works. Like you actually hear what's happening as if you were there. So, um, so while you physically don't get the, the pleasure of, 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 of being in the room, um, you do, you do sonically get to be able to have total control over the sound and what you're looking for. So that was how we were able to do it. And we recorded with, um, with an orchestra for, for basically a week. Um, there were also many other recordings I did. And we can talk about that with, uh, for example, with Julia Bullock and David Huey, these incredible singers. Uh, Julia was in Norway at the time in a cabin quarantining, I believe when she recorded her vocals and, you know, uh, and then there were other remote, over over the 18 to 20 months, you know, I mean, there were other remote sessions that we would do in different different parts of the world. But um, but for the big orchestra sessions, that's how we that's how we did those. Well, let, well let's talk about what you just touched on. Um, one of the cues that has uh, Julia Bullock's vocals is titled Aria. Would you like to describe that one? Barry and I have never actually worked with uh, vocalists on our projects, and it was you know again like all the ideas that that uh, Barry has that we talk about, you know, it was, it started out initially as an experiment. Um, we weren't sure what the nature of voice would be, but Barry had an instinct that there could be something really beautiful and powerful um, about incorporating it into the score, literally, you know? Um, and early on, there was a piece that I wrote um, that, that was going to be in a couple different places. Um, we were going to potentially hear it in the beginning in South Carolina, but it actually would become much more integral in North Carolina. And, and the thing, again, one of the things I love about working with Barry is, you know, he has the entire scope of the series in his mind's eye and ear to such a remarkable extent that, you know, I could play him a piece and he would just say, North Carolina, you know, and I would, and, and I would, or I'd play, or I'd say, you know, episode 10 and he would say, not a lot of music. You know, he would just know. And, and, and obviously as a composer, that's an incredible gift to, to work with someone who has that, that vision for, for the pro for the project at hand. Um, but with the vocalists, um, I wrote this piece initially for harps actually. Uh, and then I, there was a, there was a, mo a very particular moment in episode two where in South Carolina, where there's kind of a transitional moment where I think the episode is you're, is beginning to take a turn is what I would say without giving anything away. You're starting to change the tone of where we are and, and in a sense, deepen and, 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 um, take us to a darker place in a sense, uh, where you realize that things are not what they seem. And at that moment, Barry and I talked about putting this particular piece, but with a vocalist and, and an almost operatic, operatic vocalist. So I've actually, um, I've been collaborating with the San Francisco Symphony. There's a kind of collective that uh, Esapeka Salonen has put together over the past few years, um, a collective of different artists. And uh, one of the 
people is an amazing soprano named Julia Bullock. And so I reached out to Julia, actually, thinking that this might be a perfect collaboration. We'd never actually even met in person, but we have, you know, I was such a fan of her work. And uh, it turned out that she was in Norway uh, at the time <laughs> when I when I called her. Uh, and, I, and I sent her the music and she recorded it, you know, just in this cabin, in, like in the woods in Norway, and sent it over. And we, and then as soon as I showed this to Barry and mixed it together, he got even more excited about the possibilities of voice. Uh, and so we went even further in that. And in parallel, I started working with David Huey, another incredible uh, singer, a tenor, who also performed the same piece uh, in a different way that would that would uh, that would appear in the series, but also doing a lot of vocal experiments where actually, for example, asking David to even perform certain melodies of some of the themes and see kind of what those brought. And uh, and Barry was incredibly uh, into this, so we. We just continued on with it, and uh, we ended up having voice in certain parts of the series, which, which again, for us was the first time we'd ever done that. So Nicholas, you've been very busy. Um, another recent project was Cruella. Yes. <laughs> Would you tell us just a little bit about your approach to that project? Sure. Cruella was uh, was was very different, and uh, I, I think for me, you know, I, I'm always interested in um, in trying new things and learning new things from projects. Um, and I think for me, you know, again, one of the, one of the things that that excites me the most is the fact that I, I, I view all these projects as new adventures in a way. I never want to do the same sound twice. Uh, you know, I, for every single project, I want to try to figure out something new because it's just, it's just, uh, it's just so fascinating to get to, to, to do this and to, and to explore these new worlds. So Cruella was definitely something I'd never done that type of thing before, uh, you know, working with Greg Gillespie, the director, and he early on, he, there, there were, there was this huge range of, uh, rock, huge rock tracks, uh, from the sixties and seventies, right, right. uh, that, that he wanted to have in, in the film. And so I think the challenge was for the score was to do two things. It was really to, to create and, and to, uh, you know, really, uh, embrace the full scope of Cruella as a character, as as a as a person, um, with a full emotional scope. There's you know there's some very key moments in the film where uh, Emma Stone, who's incredible as Cruella, you know where she um, is having these very powerful emotional realizations about herself and her 
mother and her and her and her family's history without giving anything away. <laughs> and basically, uh, there were some moments that n- knew we needed this very large orchestral kind of scope. But at the same time, the key to the score itself was how do you create a score that that can connect with some of the largest rock tracks of the 20th century in a way and make it cohesive. Um, so my, my early conversations with Craig were just this pitch of, well, what if I recorded with, with amazing rock musicians in London, uh, at Abbey road. And we had all the authentic gear from the sixties and seventies. And we somehow created a score that essentially was, was, was a rock score and then also could somehow incorporate orchestra. So, you know, it, it sounds, it, you know, it sounds like it checks the boxes on paper, but then you're sort of like, well, how do we actually do that? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, 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 and he was really into this, this idea. So I started experimenting with that and, uh, I did record with these amazing rock musicians in London and, um, uh, recorded at Abbey Road, uh, and, and at Air as well. And, um, and then had orchestra fusing with these these rock tracks so that was really the idea of just making sure that when when you were watching the film that it didn't feel like there were these sort of apples and oranges where you'd have like rock songs and then all of a sudden you'd have a score that didn't relate in some way the hope was that it would feel cohesive who were some of the musicians that you worked with the musicians I've actually worked with some incredible uh, rock musicians who uh, I've worked with on other projects as well. There's an amazing guitarist named Leo Abrams, um, uh, amazing bassist named Steve Pierce. You know, uh, Ian Thomas, our, our drummer. Um, we also worked with uh, a group of singers. There's uh, some amazing uh, vocalists on some of my score tracks. Uh, so I worked with members of the Swingle Singers, for example. Uh, you know, who have that very distinctive sound uh from that era so it's a, a, a wide range of uh of, of amazing musicians and then also an, an orchestra uh in, in in london as well so um so yeah it was, it was fantastic and then another very different project um correct you're working on a score for carmen right now that yes that's still that's still in process i've actually been um talking to benjamin milpie about that for many many years and uh he's been shooting that actually in australia yeah, so that's a, it's a reimagining of Carmen, a t- total kind of a reconception of what that of what that uh, project is. To go back to Underground Railroad, at what point did you read the book, and would you just talk about? I mean, it's such a powerful story emotionally. Uh, what inspired your your choices? I read the book before uh, you know reading any scripts or before talking to Barry actually uh, about his thoughts. And I think, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the the musical themes that we've talked about were really some of those early thoughts that I had from the book. I think the biggest, you know, obviously the scope and the power of the book um, were, 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 you know, are, are incredibly powerful and uh, sort of unavoidable when you engage with that book. Um, But I also think that, um, those questions for me of the of the anachronisms and the strangeness and the the magical realism those were really some of the things I think I think right away when I read the book those were my um, I, I was already kind of honing in on the musical challenges because I think I think that's just something that sort of uh, right away on any project I'm already kind of thinking well what what exactly how is that going to feel or you know I remember um, 
back to the to Moonlight when I first worked with Barry, um, it was that same that same kind of thing where I think it's the it's the early it's really being sensitive to your earliest feelings about a particular project that I think is so essential to um, to what you eventually create because you only get to have those you only get to have a first experience of an idea once it happens just once so it's you know the first reading of the of a book the first time you read the script i always will take a lot of notes and and uh and really think through exactly what i'm my first thoughts and my feelings because you don't get to do that again <laughs> everything else is always in relation to that first moment so you know i remember on moonlight the same sort of thing where i immediately thought my first instinct with moonlight was that it was a poem it felt like a work of poetry. It was so beautiful. And so I remember thinking to myself, that feeling of, you know, what's the musical analog of that kind of a feeling of poetry? And that was that early kernel of an idea. Um, and on Underground Railroad, I think it was the combination of the scope of it and that question of the magical realism. Those were the two things that I started thinking about. And then what was so fascinating was I never would have ever anticipated that Barry's first conversations with me would be about, you know, the sound of, of drilling at a construction site or, you know, and that we would wind up taking cicadas and bending the sound and finding, you know, that, so that's, that's the joy of the process is that you, you know, you just never, you just never know where you're going to wind up. Well, you know, with the, with this project, um, the, the sounds, the cicadas, this was actually something I wanted to ask you about was, uh, you know, was so much a part of the, um, yes. the project as well. Um, would you talk about just how you worked with the sound team and how you balance the music and the sound really throughout the whole series? Sure. Sure. I, I love working with Annalie. And, uh, what's great is I think there's, there's sort of two points in the process where we talk a lot. There's the early stages when, you know, I might be sitting with Barry and, and he'll say, you know, I think Annalie has an amazing, amazing cicada sounds, you know, so I'll, I'll say, Hey, can you send me a Dropbox of cicada sounds, you know? Um, and then there's the later stages and, and Annalie and I are so in touch because, um, especially, uh, you know, I would say more so even on, on TV than on film, there's the, the ending schedule cycle of creating a television series there's so much that goes into that on a weekly basis you know film in some ways is so much more self-contained where usually there's a there's a period where the dub happens and it's this you know whereas on television it's it's this massive <laughs> scope that every week has a slightly different schedule and you're sort of always trying to make sure you have everything that you need at the right moments so Annalie was both an incredible, you know, she's an incredible artist, but also it's great having a, a wonder, a, a direct communication line with her because I think there are technical things that, you know, making sure that she's getting from me what she needs. Um, some of the tracks had so many stems and Barry and I were doing so much experimentation in some of these pieces that, you know, uh, there were times where I was like, you know, I know the bass is massive on this track, but, you know, do your best, <laughs> you know, because um, there's this, you know, Barry and I have this massive subwoofer in the in the studio there, um, you know, so so it's 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 really a constant kind of conversation, and and then on a, on a creative sort of artistic level, I think that uh, different episodes had different relationships between sound and music, uh, like I was saying, for example, episode ten. Uh, I remember early on Barry saying that he wanted it to be pretty sparse musically and that sound would kind of 
take take over in a way. Sound would be the would the, be the lead. And there were lots of times throughout the series where that kind of conversation would happen. Where you know, even down on a micro level to a particular moment, where uh, you know, I would say, "Do we want music here?" Or here's the type of thing we might do. And then him saying, "You know what? Sound's going to take that." Well, we're going to wrap with one last cue from the series and you had selected Penny Candies as one of your favorites. Would you introduce that one? Penny Candies, again, this is in South Carolina and this is a particular moment where Cora is, without giving anything away again, I will say she's uh, she's discovering certain things. She's piecing certain things together about what may very well be going on in South Carolina. And this music This was, again, for me, kind of a transitional, there were a lot of these kind of transitional moments, uh, tonally in a way, where we're starting, we're feeling, there's a sense of wonder, but there's also a sense of something very, very difficult and horrific lurking beneath the surface. And that was a real challenge, I think, was how do you create music that, that does both of those things at the same time, that sort of implies one thing on the surface, but then is also saying something very, very different underneath. So Penny Candies is, is, is for me, I think, an example of that kind of balancing. And Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to talk to you. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.